You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. John Boehner, the former Speaker of the House, joins the Post to discuss his new book, his tumultuous relationship with former President Donald Trump, and his take on the future of the Republican Party. Let's listen. Hello, I'm Paul Kane, congressional correspondent and columnist here at the Washington Post. My guest this morning is the 53rd Speaker of the House of Representatives, John Boehner, who resigned in the fall of 2015 after a long tenure, almost 25 years, in the House of Representatives. Welcome to Washington Post Live, Speaker Boehner, and let's get right to the questions. Hey, Paul, it's good to be with you. Hey, you're, uh, tell the audience you are uh, in Marco Island, your retirement home, enjoying yourself. It's a little bit overcast there, just like here in D.C. Um, a little overcast, a little windy, and pretty humid. All right. Well, listen, I'm going to start at the end, if you will. Um, on the evening of September 24th, 2015, I got a text from a couple of friends who said, hey, meet us at Alberto's. We're having dinner. So I jumped in an Uber, went over to Alberto's. I don't know if I ever told you this. And I got out, and I looked, I looked at the street, and there were a couple of SUVs, and I was like, oh, man, Boehner's here. So I walked in, met my friends, got out the menu, and there it was, staring at me, veal a la Boehner. So listen, tell the audience first, what is veal a la Boehner, and what is so important about that night? Well, uh, veal a la Boehner is uh, it's basically veal melonese. Uh, with a fried egg on top or two, and uh, eight or ten anchovy fillets. Uh, it's a German dish, but the Italians actually make it better than the Germans. And uh, I would always get it, order it there, and finally they put it on the menu. Uh, but September 24th, uh, 2015 was the day the Pope came to the Capitol. Uh, I had uh, family in town, friends in town, and we were all upstairs. Uh, uh, in uh, the private dining room, having a big dinner, simple as that. Yeah, but the big dinner also led you to a big decision, and you decided that night, right? Or was it the next morning when you woke up and went on your walk? Well, after uh, after the Pope left on the twenty fourth, uh, I got calls from senators, House members, Democrats, Republican staff. Uh, it was. Might have been the happiest day I saw on Capitol Hill in the 25 years I was there. I was going to leave at the end of 2015. I was going to announce it in uh, mid-November, when uh, uh, around my birthday, actually. Uh, but uh, later on in the afternoon, I told my chief of staff, I said, you know what? I might just do this tomorrow. And I said, I don't think it's going to get any better than it is today. And he said, why not? And so uh, I thought about it that night. Uh, next morning. I walked up to Starbucks and back with my boys and uh, and then uh, sat and read for about an hour and walked up to Peach Diner on 2nd Street and thought about it. I was walking down 2nd Street uh, past St. Peter's Church on the house side and thought, you know, I think today's the day. And it was. It was. But it was also at a time when you were facing this just, it was almost five years of just this constant, relentless uh, siege from the Mark Meadows wing, the House Freedom Caucus, Jim Jordan, uh, and these other figures who just kept giving you unending headache after headache after headache. Um, how much did it upset you that it 
it got portrayed and felt as if you were, at, sure, you were leaving a couple of months earlier than usual, but you were leaving at a time in a sense of people were trying to push you out. Well, listen, uh, I didn't mind those members who were giving me headaches every day. If it wasn't them, it'd be somebody else, all right? Uh, well, that was really never the issue. Uh, the fact that uh, that uh, people in the press want to portray this, that these guys push me out is uh, pretty laughable. But I, I can understand how people see it that way. But I'm here to tell you, uh, it had absolutely nothing to do with my decision. Actually, I was going to leave it. I was going to leave at the end of 2014. Uh, I thought uh, when I was first uh, elected speaker, I thought, you know, if I'm lucky enough to do this job for four years, that'll be long enough. Uh, I was never going to be one of those members who was going to hang around Congress, hang around Congress, uh, not even, uh, even, not sure even where they are. And so uh, I, I was, I was going to leave in my mid 60s. Uh, after Eric Cantor lost his primary election in 2014, uh, I thought I had to stay an extra year. Uh, I think the mark of a good leader is is having someone in place behind you that uh, is capable of carrying the torch and being a good leader. Uh, and at the time, I didn't think Kevin McCarthy was quite there yet, so I wanted to spend an extra year doing everything I could to get uh, Kevin ready to do my job. Uh, it didn't turn out that way. Uh, uh, a couple, a little step along the way. Uh, but uh, uh, I did stick, stick around another year. Uh, listen, I, there's nothing I regret uh, uh, about my 25 years in Congress. I uh, enjoyed uh, uh, almost every day, uh, even uh, when the knuckleheads were driving me nuts. The knuckleheads. Now, when you look back at these last 10, 12 years of the Republican Party, in the book, you really portray it. You even call the House of Representatives crazy town and that you were essentially mayor of crazy town. When you look back at this evolution of the Republican Party, is Donald Trump the cause or the effect of today's Republican Party? Did those people who were the knuckleheads, did they set the stage and make Trump almost the logical outcome of what happened? Or is it all on Trump and what he has done to the party? No, Paul, I think you're taking a too narrow view of, uh, of this. Uh, Trump was a product of a increasingly dysfunctional political system. You know, over the last, uh, let's take 30 years. Uh, over the last 30 years, uh, uh, where we get our news, how we get our news, uh, what the news is, uh, has changed dramatically. Uh, the Amer American people are probably getting 100 times, 200 times more news about their government and people in their government than they ever got 30 years ago. And all this information is tending to push and or pull people into one of two directions, either to the far right or to the far left, leaving fewer and fewer people in the middle. And, uh, and by the time we got to 2016, uh, I would argue Donald Trump uh, understood what was going on better than any other uh, candidate for our nomination in 2016. He beat some really, frankly, some really good uh, uh, potential candidates. And, uh, and frankly, did it rather handily. And I would argue he's a product uh, of, this, uh, of this increasingly dysfunctional system. And of the media ecosystem, particularly on the, on the conservative side of things, you write about that in your book, where you had conversations with Roger Ailes in which you were trying to get him to 
to not put the knuckleheads on TV nearly as much. And it ended up with Roger Ailes talking about his own conspiracies. So you think that yeah. the media, the media created those incentives? Well, I would, I don't call it the media. You got talk radio, you've got uh, uh, cable TV, which is nothing more than 24 hour political channel. Uh, then you have the internet, and then you've got every social media platform known to man uh, that allows people to create their own persona uh, and, uh, and create more news. Some of it true, some of it not true. I mean, it's bizarre the stuff that's out. A lot of people don't remember this about you. You get elected in 1990 uh, in a very competitive primary in uh, uh, south, uh, southwestern Ohio. You t come to Congress when the Republicans are in the minority, and you were an early generation of these rabble-rousers. You were exposing uh, corruption, and these were things that exposed Republican leaders and Democratic leaders. You and uh, uh, Doolittle, Nussel, Santorum, you exposed things at the House Bank, the uh, House Post Office, the House Restaurant, and people hated you. You were, were you, weren't you an earlier version of some of these knuckleheads? Uh, well, uh, listen, I saw things that I thought were wrong, and uh, I decided to stand up and expose it, along with some of my freshman Republican colleagues. Uh, there was a purpose in us exposing it, and that was to clean up the institution. The institution was a mess. As Charlie Rose, the then chairman of the House Administration Committee, described it one day, in the early 90s. He said, uh, we run this place like the last plantation in America. Well, let me tell you what, it was a mess. And, uh, and so cleaning up the institution uh, became one of the, uh, one of the early goals, more transparency, more openness. Uh, but there was, uh, there was substance to what we were doing. Uh, some of my colleagues in uh, the Knucklehead Caucus, what they want is chaos, uh, chaos and noise, uh, which is about all they do. When you were when you were that young rabble rouser, um, the, the early knucklehead caucus, so to speak, there was no Fox News. Rush Limbaugh was just sort of tr starting to create some sort of national brand. In if the roles were reversed and a young John Boehner was arriving in Congress today or two years ago, do you think you would? Which path would you have followed? Would you have ended up in the knucklehead caucus being in the media social media creating your own brand or would you have continued up into the leadership ranks uh who knows uh, only god knows the answer to that question now listen uh, i tried to live by one of my bainerisms that i try to teach my colleagues every day and uh and that's this if you do the right things for the right reasons the right things will usually happen don't worry about it and so I just okay. tried to do the right thing every day, and I didn't worry about it. When you first became Republican leader, when you folks were in the minority in 2007 through 2010, you came in after a period of like, some bad corruption and personal scandals that really tarnished the Republican brand. And you had something, you didn't officially say it was a zero tolerance policy, but you were pretty tough. Um, Congressman Vito Fasella got caught with a DUI when he was driving home to see his family. It turned out this was his second family that his first family didn't know about. Pretty soon thereafter, Mr. Pacella, with the encouragement of your leadership, 
uh, no longer was in Congress. There was a guy named Chris Lee who, uh, on one of the Republican retreats, was uh, seeking out uh, getaway romances with people who were not his wife. He pretty soon was out of Congress. Today, you've got somebody like Matt Gates, who's now under investigation for potential underage sex trafficking, and there doesn't seem to be anything, any consequence that is happening to him. Could you, what would you advise Kevin McCarthy to do in this situation? Um, and you've got Marjorie Taylor Greene and some others who were initially talking about, you know, an Anglo-Saxon focused uh, caucus. Is there anything that a leader today can do to people uh, who are causing troubles in the, in the well, caucus? Well, governing today uh, uh, is difficult. And I think all the leaders uh, have their hands full trying to govern uh, uh, the Congress and trying to find common ground with the other side. Uh, listen, uh, before I became the minority leader, uh, there were uh, a number of uh, uh, corruption issues, scandal issues that, frankly, had never been. It's, people didn't address them. The leaders didn't address them on both sides of the aisle. And I told my colleagues uh, when I was running for minority leader uh, that on behalf of the Congress and on behalf of the Republican caucus, I wasn't going to put up with that nonsense. And I didn't. Uh, I'd bring these members into the office and look them in the eye and determine what the truth was or try to determine what the truth was. And if I thought somebody uh, was, uh, was guilty of uh, a horrendous behavior, I told them, you've got one hour. One hour to go and bring your letter of resignation, or I'm going to go to the floor and move to expel you. Uh, when, when, when these members get in trouble, it tarnishes all the members of Congress. Uh, it's frankly not fair to the members. And the quicker the leaders deal with it, the better off they are. Did you ever give that advice to Kevin McCarthy about how to handle these situations? Oh, don't worry. He, he saw me handle it uh, many times. But, you know, every, every one of these cases is different. You know, I don't know all the details of this Matt Gates uh, uh, investigation. I mean, I've read some of the, the articles, but I don't know what the details are. Uh, but when I sit down with these members, I look them in the eye. Remember, Paul, I grew up in a bar, all right? I can smell BS a mile away. And, uh, you know, I can look these guys in the eye, and I knew whether they were telling me the truth or not. Or I'd, I'd ask him this question. Is there anything else? Well, if that answer didn't come out no and come out quickly, then I knew. It's time for them to go. All right. Uh, listen, we have some questions from readers. Um, there's, a, there's a great one from a woman named Susan. Uh, who here's the here's the question? Susan Wolfson from Pennsylvania wrote in really simple. Why didn't you come forward sooner? Well, listen, uh, you know I'm not into writing books. I've never written a book before. Uh, after I retired, I thought I'd write a book. I thought I had a pretty interesting life, pretty interesting, very interesting career, and uh, I thought it'd be a, a good story for people to read. Uh, but, uh, you know, as I got started, I, I, I'll say I had a false start. And then I kind of put it on the back burner and uh, eventually got around to putting the book together and getting it published. Uh, and, you know, it just happened to come out last week. Uh, <laughs> there, was no, there was no effort to delay it, no effort to, to move it forward. It just happened to happen next week 
or it happened, I yeah, guess it happened last week. There have been some critics who've said, why didn't you speak out sooner if this is the way you really felt about the state of the Republican Party? Um, they, they, they feel like you should have said something that, you know, as a leader, even though you're in retirement, you're still a distinguished elder statesman of the party. Why not speak out sooner? And would you have listen, said- the, the leaders have a hard enough time trying to trying to handle their cars and trying to go. The last thing I need is some has been. Uh, some Monday morning quarterback uh, firing shots at him across the bow. That's just not my style. Uh, but, you know, as I tell my story in the book, you know, some of these things uh, are going to come out. Uh, but it's not my job to tell them what to do or what not to do. Uh, they've got a tough enough job as it is. All right. One of the things that really marked your almost five years as speaker was this continued search for the big deal. You were always in the mix with uh, Obama trying to get a big fiscal deal. There were two or three different bites at that apple. There was a big immigration package that the Senate put together, uh, John McCain and Marco Rubio, uh, Lincoln Arms with Chuck Schumer and Dick Durbin, um, that you never never could quite bring to the floor of the House. Um, and there, there was gun legislation that was very popular uh, on background checks. And it never, none of those things ever got done. Some of them were down into the five-yard line, to use a football metaphor from your old Mueller high school days, and it just seemed to fall apart. Um, what do you regret the most of those, uh, given how everything turned out? If you could go back and do it over again, would you roll the dice on any of those? And even if it meant giving up your, your speakership a little earlier than, than you would have? Well, I think... Uh... Uh, the big deficit reduction package that President Obama and I worked very closely on in 2011 is clearly my biggest disappointment. Uh, we, we, had, uh, we, we had worked uh, for six or eight weeks and had a solid package that would have really began uh, to put America's fiscal house in order. And then uh, the president walked away from the deal. I tried to come back to us several times after that over the years. Uh, but here's the issue, Paul. Uh, we're spending more than what we bring in. We've done it for about 60 of the last 65 years. Uh, you can't do this in your home. You're, no business in America can do it. And guess what? Your government can't do it either. I mean, the money that we're spending today is going to get paid back by our kids, our grandkids, and our great-grandkids, for God's sake. And so uh, if you look at uh, the biggest focus of my speakership, I uh, was trying to put our fiscal house in order. Now, we did reduce the deficit five years in a row, even though I was uh, the Republican speaker, Barack Obama was president, Harry Reid uh, was the majority leader for most of that time. Uh, we made progress, just not as much progress as I would have. Uh, but my second biggest uh, disappointment was immigration. The I told the president, uh, I want to get this done. Uh, our immigration system is a mess from top to bottom. It hadn't been overhauled in decades and decades. and uh, and the Senate sent a bill over. I had a bipartisan group of members working together uh, going back to uh, 07, 08. Uh, and this bipartisan group, I kept waiting for them. They were very close to having an agreement. I mean, very close. And no sooner we just get ready to move, uh, President Obama would do something on immigration to kind of set the whole field on fire again uh, that prevented us from being able to bring it to the floor. And so uh, 
Uh, it was a big disappointment. I wish we'd have gotten it done. Uh, but uh, but on immigration, sir, they had a Senate bill that got 68 votes. That's a that's a big vote in the Senate for a big bill with a lot of components. And and you folks, you you never even had anything that was being marked up in the Judiciary Committee. I mean, were you really well, ever that close to anything? I mean, was it? Well, the Judiciary. The Judiciary Committee would not produce a bill. Period. I tried. I tried. I tried. I can't tell you how many meetings I had uh, with the then chairman. They could not Mr. produce a bill. So Mr. Goodlatte just couldn't do it. Is the or is wouldn't. Eric or wouldn't or wouldn't or okay? Um, was Eric Canner's loss in the primary in 2014 was that the moment? where he loses to a never before heard of David Bratt, who ran against Cantor as soft on immigration. Was that the moment that any chance of immigration legislation ended because House Republicans would never support it? Uh, I don't think Eric's loss in 2014 had anything to do with immigration. It may have moved a few votes, but I don't think that, I don't think it was the issue. And it did not deter me in the least. But you didn't move anything for the next 15 months. Well, you know, we got committees and committees are supposed to produce bills. Uh, sometimes uh, if they're unable to produce a bill, uh, you know, you'll see a bipartisan group. Uh, and I, uh, I had some real hardliners in this bipartisan uh, group uh, trying to come together on immigration. Uh, and I mean, we were very, very close. Uh, yeah, it's a disappointment, but when, they get it done. Okay. Um, if, in today's members, who folks who are still there, um, do you talk to many of them much? I mean, even if it's just about golf or wine or... Oh, well, I, I talk to members. They, they call me once in a while. I never call them. But they call me once in a while, either shoot who, the breeze or seek some advice. Well, who are some of those that you still stay in touch with? Well, I don't think I'm... I think I'll protect the innocent here. All right. Um, our our friends over at, I think it was Playbook, reported you're going to help out Liz Cheney for her primary. Uh, you're going to do a fundraiser for her? Uh, I've, I've supported Liz Cheney in the past. I continue to support Liz Cheney. Um, I'm not familiar that I'm actually doing it event. Oh. Okay. My bad. But you're, you're still supportive of her. Do you think, of what course. does that say? What does that say about the evolution of the Republican Party, where a guy like Dick Cheney, who we in the media may have spent a lot of time sort of castigating as this hardline conservative, and now he or she is a few terms into the House, and she's being attacked from the right flank, if that is even a flank anymore. She is somehow soft. Is that – what does that say? <laughs> Why? Well, uh, listen, I'm a conservative Republican, right? So is Liz Cheney. We're just not crazy. And, uh, you know, I, well, you, people in the media want to talk about these people being on the right. Uh, they're, on, they're in the crazy car, all right? Uh, it's got nothing to do with uh, being conservative. Oh, my God, uh, I have one of the most conservative voting records in Congress before I became speaker and no longer uh, cast my vote, typically. Uh, and yet here I was uh, being referred to as the establishment, the centrist. I used to laugh my rear end off. Uh, 
that uh, people could call me a centrist, uh, squish the establishment. Uh, but I guess when you're the Speaker of the House, you are the establishment. Fair. Did you, speaking of crazy, uh, where were you on January 6th? I was, uh, I was at home uh, here at Marco Island. I, I don't watch, uh, I don't watch much TV, but I got a text from uh, one of my uh, former staff, one of my staffers told me I should turn on the TV, and I did. And I watched it for about an hour and uh, turned TV off. Couldn't take it anymore. Uh, I was angry, uh, sad. Uh, I thought it was one of the most pathetic moments uh, in American history. I mean, that even prompted you to, to rewrite some of your uh, portions of your book, right? It did. It did. I had to rewrite a few portions, add a few more statements, uh, make clear that uh, that uh, what led to that uh, uh, should not, should nobody should accept it ever. Yeah. Did you uh, did you ever talk to Mitch? Did you talk to Mitch McConnell about that after that day? Any other no. senators? No. 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 What did you make? What did you make of McConnell's positioning in? all of that, where at first he seemed to send a signal that he was willing to consider convicting Trump. In the end, he said it wasn't necessary because Trump was out of office, but then delivered that scathing speech where he seems to have just really ticked off all sides of this fight, including Trump. Yeah, well, you know, Mitch has got a tough job like all the other leaders do. And uh, yeah, he's in a difficult spot. And so, uh, you know, I, frankly, I like Mitch. I think he's a great leader. Uh, and uh, uh, I've been very supportive of him, but I haven't talked to him. So, and I'm not going to criticize him because I'll make his job harder. <laughs> All right. Well, listen, um, a couple of senators who are longtime friends of yours, Rob Portman and Roy Blunt, uh, are both, have both decided to retire. We're already seeing you know, competitive primaries in those states, states that, including your original home, Ohio, uh, states that should be Republican seats. And you're already seeing this sort of rush to be the Trumpiest of the Trumpers uh, in the two primaries. Um, what do you, you know, first of all, in Ohio, do you, do you have a favorite that you would, you would try to nudge into the race? And what do you, do you worry about what happens to I know you never really care that much for the Senate, but if the Senate turns into the House, uh, what's left of Congress? Well, if uh, they got rid of the legislative filibuster in the Senate, the Senate would then look like the House, which I think okay. would be a huge blow to American democracy. Listen, uh, uh, I understand these members. One, uh, both Blunt and uh, Portman are getting a little older. Uh, they've been running for office for quite a while. Uh, and who would want to run for office one more time in this environment? I get it. I'm, I wouldn't do it. I said yesterday, I'd rather set myself on fire than to put myself on the ballot. Uh, but, uh, uh, yeah, there's going to be, uh, there's always a contest for these seats. And there's going to be a vigorous contest. Uh, and uh, there are going to be some Trumpers, going to be some Republicans. Uh, God knows what else shows up. Good luck. You know, there was a time in uh, 2016 and 2017 where it became this sort of retro thing. And there were young Republican staffers who would walk around wearing Reagan Bush 84 t-shirts. 
And it was it was both sort of kitschy and like a nod to the past, but also it was their way of trying to signal they still believe in the Republican Party, epitomized by Ronald Reagan and the Bush family. Is that is that Republican Party dead? You said in your book at the very end, you said that you couldn't get elected in today's party and you didn't think Ronald Reagan could. Is that party dead? Well, and if it No, it's not dead. Uh, it's just the Republicans have, need to go back to the principles of what it means to be a Republican. Uh, this isn't about personalities and cults. Uh, we're, we're a party of fiscal responsibility, uh, a party of a strong national defense. Uh, they can lay out the half a dozen uh, Republican principles uh, that would, would would appeal to two-thirds of America and go talk about it. Uh, that's the, the key to reviving the party and putting it back in power. Is there anyone that you see on the horizon who can do what you just outlined for the Republican Party heading into 2024? Well, there's a lot of candidates out there, and I'm sure uh, there are several of them. Uh, who can uh, bridge the gap, if you will. And uh, you know, good luck to them. Uh, I don't call them. Some of them call me, I'll talk to them, but <laughs> I'm not in the middle of this as much as you all <laughs> want to push me into the middle of it. Good luck. Oh, we always are going to try and push you into it, Speaker Boehner. Um, well, listen, we'll, uh, I'll, I'll have to meet you sometime for the Villa Boehner up at Alberto's. Uh, good luck with everything. That's all the time we have this morning. Thanks for joining us. Uh, look, everybody, please tune in tomorrow at 1.20 p.m. My colleague Jonathan Capehart is interviewing Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer, Whitmer as that state is reeling for another surge in COVID cases. Just remember, you can always go to WashingtonPostLive.com to get the schedule of upcoming events and register for those. Anyway, thank you all very much. Book is great. Always great hearing from you, Speaker Boehner. Thanks for everything. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.